are watching a House Intelligence Committee hearing about the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, specifically the reauthorization of Section 702 of FISA. Section 702 allows the Fed to surveil foreigners outside the U.S. for terror threats. It's come under scrutiny for being used to surveil Americans. Let's tune in. Today's business meeting is being broadcast live and streamed on the committee's YouTube channel. It will be conducted entirely on an unclassified basis. All participants are reminded to refrain from discussing classified or other information protected from public disclosure. The committee will now turn to the legislative business and hand the markup of H.R. 6611, the FISA Reform and Reauthorization Act of 2023. I ask unanimous consent that any recorded vote be postponed until the completion of consideration of the legislative text and any amendments without objection so ordered. Today the committee meets to consider H.R. 66111 to amend the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978, to make certain reforms to the authorities under such act and to authorize Title VII of such act and for its reauthorization and for other purposes. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, established safeguards on intelligence operations regarding the collection of foreign intelligence. Included in FISA is a critical national security tool known as Section 702, which is a highly targeted collection program that only collects on foreign targets who possess or communicate valuable foreign intelligence information, in short, threats to national security. On December 31, Section 702 will sunset. As a matter of emphasis, I want to reiterate that Section 702 authorizes intelligence collection only on foreign persons who possess or communicate specific types of foreign intelligence information. The authority does not, and with today's bill being marked up, will not allow the intelligence community to target any Americans without a warrant. FISA Section 702 has been reauthorized over the years with very little fanfare. However, this reauthorization is in the spotlight because of the well-documented abuses by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The FBI has abused 702 of FISA. These abuses demonstrate the need for congressional action in the form of comprehensive, meaningful reform, not just to Section 702, but all of FISA, coupled with reauthorization of this vital national security tool. This committee, with the establishment of an internal bipartisan working group and in parallel the establishment of a joint Republican working group with the House Judiciary Committee, has committed itself to identifying problems and finding solutions to make FISA a more efficient and effective national security tool while simultaneously protecting American civil rights and civil liberties by preventing future abuses. H.R. 6611 contains 40 targeted reforms that solve the problems we identified with the FBI's querying features, the Title I application process, and the lack of transparency with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, known as the FISC. With groups like Hamas, ISA, Al excuse me, with groups like Hamas, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and Hezbollah calling for attacks targeting the homeland and American allies and interests abroad, we are currently at the highest threat to national security to the United States in a decade. FISA is our best weapon to combat the threats we face today and in the future. The American people are looking for us to keep them safe. <clears throat> what we do today <clears throat> to both <clears throat> reform and reauthorize FISA will help ensure that we are doing what we were sent to Washington for. 
Before I conclude, I want to thank Congressman Darren LaHood and Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick for their efforts in leading the, the, our working groups. I also want to thank my ranking member Jim Himes for his bipartisan support throughout this process. Finally, I would like to thank the committee staff for their countless hours they've spent drafting this important legislation. I do want to take a minute and make a few comments about the bill that was passed by Judiciary. Yesterday, the Judiciary Committee passed a bill um, purporting to be FISA reauthorization and reform. Our bill is targeted to FBI abuses, and I think I would have thought that their bill would have also. <clears throat> However, their bill spends more time expanding the constitutional rights of foreigners who travel in and out of the United States. It creates civil liability for telecommunications companies that work with our intelligence community voluntarily. And curiously, it provides immunity from prosecution for some horrific crimes if they're discovered in 702 uh, uh, foreign intelligence collection. Under their bill, 702 information would not be admissible in criminal prosecutions for horrific crimes such as child pornography, human trafficking, murder, and even money laundering. These are provisions of, of their bill that they're going to have to explain. Our bill is, is targeted toward FBI abuses, protecting the American citizens, and ensuring that we can address the national security threats to our nation. With that, I want to recognize my ranking member. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I'm very proud to support the FISA Reform and Reauthorization Act of 2023. For the better part of a year, the House Intelligence Committee has worked diligently and collaboratively in an, on an unprecedented basis on this bill, starting from the premise that it is essential that we, re, we reauthorize section, of a, section 702 of FISA, but that we cannot and will not do so without significant reforms. I cannot stress enough the background work that went into this product over the last year. Frankly, I've never seen anything quite like it in my 15 years in Congress. Hearing after hearing, hundreds if not thousands of meetings and get-togethers with every element of the government that uses or touches or is interested in 702 authorities, meetings with, the FISA, with FISA judges, privacy advocates, and then constant bicameral bipartisan negotiation. Uh, I think I spent more time over the course of the two weeks with this chairman uh, and with uh, uh, Chairman Warner uh, over in the Senate than I've uh, spent with family members. So this is really a product of an immense amount of work around a very, very technical subject. The bill is the product of those many efforts, and it includes reforms that are tough as well as targeted, aimed at ensuring that we can continue to use this foreign intelligence tool to keep Americans safe, but that we can also have confidence that it is being used in a way that is consistent with our values. I want to walk through a few specific provisions that are in the bill, um, but first a word about the process. We have examined the value that the authority provides every day to the intelligence community, a value that is best exemplified by the, by the fact that our most, our most exquisite intelligence product, the President Daily Brief, often contains an average of roughly 60% of items that are derived from FISA 702. We have countless examples, some declassified, but many more still highly classified, that demonstrate why Section 702 is indispensable and how it very literally saves American lives. That's why the President's Intelligence Advisory Board stated in their report on Section, 02, Section 702 earlier this year that the failure to reauthorize Section 702 would be judged as, quote, one of the worst intelligence 
failures of our time. Our oversight demonstrated the value of Section 702, but it also found that there have been genuine problems in how Section 702 has been used, which the Chairman referred to. There, are, there is plenty of room for important reforms. The problems are primarily within the FBI, where the Bureau for many years demonstrated an unacceptable record on compliance with the standards for querying U.S. persons, a record that is well documented in audits performed by the DOJ, as well as declassified opinions from the FISC. The administration has put in place a series of policies that are beginning to drive change at the Bureau and reduces these abuses, and those policies will be codified and built upon in this bill. To highlight a few provisions among the many that are in this bill, we would institute a flat prohibition on queries conducted by the FBI to uncover, quote, evidence of a crime. This is important for two reasons. First, it removes any doubt that Section 702 is a foreign intelligence authority, not a law enforcement tool. That is what Congress intended when it was first enacted, and this makes that distinction crystal clear. Second, it will help remove confusion on the part of FBI agents about what constitutes a permissible query and drive improvements in compliance. This bill would also reduce by 90 percent the number of individuals at the FBI who can approve a U.S. person query, meaning that only 550 supervisors and attorneys at the agency could approve a query of a U.S. person against the 702 database. As with many other changes, this is intended to reduce compliance failures and to ensure that every time the FBI queries the FISA 702 data, it does so for a permissible and lawful purpose. This bill would, for the first time, put in law a prohibition against queries of Section 702 data whose purpose is either to suppress free expression or to disadvantage a person on the basis of religion, ethnicity, race, gender, or any other arbitrary characteristic. And finally, this bill includes important reforms to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court itself, most notably by requiring that the FISC appoint an amicus each time the government seeks to renew its annual certification under Section 702. This will make sure that the FISC process will be adversarial and the arguments made by the government will receive strictest scrutiny. Finally, as I said before, this bill is the product of extensive bicameral and bipartisan negotiation and compromise. As such, it's not the perfect bill for anybody sitting up here, but this is how one legislates in a wide and diverse body. Each and every one of us would make individual changes, and because we don't purport to have the perfect bill, merely the best bill, um, this bill too, like previous FISA authorizations, will sunset, giving a future Congress another opportunity uh, to, uh, to consider the value of the program and reforms. As this process proceeds, all of us on this committee stand ready to work with our colleagues in the House and Senate to reauthorize Section 702 and to do so with the smart and tough reforms that are so clearly needed. Uh, once again, uh, thank you to the staff who put in hundreds if not thousands of hours on this uh, product and thank you to Chairman Turner and all the members of this committee for their contributions to this effort and our national security. I urge support for the legislation and yield back. Welcome back. Today we're tuning into a House Intelligence Committee hearing about the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, specifically the reauthorization of Section 702 of FISA. Section 702 allows the Fed to surveil foreigners outside the U.S. for terror threats. It's come under scrutiny for being used to surveil Americans. Let's watch. Thank you. We now turn to calling up the bill, and then we'll turn to uh, comments from members. Pursuant to notice, I now call up H.R. 6611, the FISA Reform and Reauthorization Act of 2023. The clerk shall report the title of the bill. 
HR 6611, the FISA Reform and Reauthorization Act of 2023. Without objection, the first reading of the bill is dispensed with and the bill is open to amendment at any point. At this time, does any member wish to be recognized? I, represent, I recognize Representative Castro. Uh, thank you, Chairman. Uh, the reform and reauthorization of FISA 702 is one of the most important tasks that this committee has, and this will be my second authorization process of a member as a member of the Intelligence Committee. I want to first thank Chairman Turner and Ranking Member Himes and my colleagues on the committee and also all of the staff, both Republican and Democrat, for their efforts over the last year in investigating the uses and abuses of this authority and proposing reforms. Uh, the process that Chairman Turner and Ranking Member Himes set up has been a thoughtful and earnest one. Over the last year, we have participated in numerous engagements with the intelligence community, the FBI, and others that have the responsibility to use these important tools authorized by law. Through that process, including as part of the bipartisan working group, I've come to appreciate the immense value of the FISA 702 authority in protecting Americans and countering our adversaries. There's no question that this authority is critical for America's national security. It has saved American lives. It has informed our diplomats as they negotiate with our adversaries. Everything I have seen during my time in this committee has led me to believe that FISA 702 should be reauthorized. But, as they say, the devil is in the details. Just as I've come to appreciate the importance of FISA 702, I've also come to understand the serious risks that the abuse of such an authority can and has led to in our country. Under current practice and law, intelligence agencies and the FBI are able to search the 702 database for communications between foreign nationals and U.S. citizens or residents. This understandably raises privacy and civil liberties risks, and while there are many legitimate cases where such searches need to be conducted, it's our responsibility to ensure that this is done in an appropriate manner. This committee's bill implements and codifies a number of important reforms to constrain the privacy and civil liberties risk to American citizens. But I'm open to more restrictions on when the government can conduct such U.S. person queries in FISA 702, including judicial review of U.S. person queries if structured appropriately. In addition to what may not be in the bill, I also have serious concerns with certain provisions in the committee's bill which prevent me from lending my support to it at this time. The most important is the language in Section 505, which codifies a process to, quote, vet non-citizens who attempt to enter the United States or wish to enter the United States for immigration, tourism, business, or personal reasons through the 702 database. I represent San Antonio, Texas, and I have family who live in the border communities along both sides of the Rio Grande. My constituents and those in South Texas have a very different relationship with the border than most Americans. We have deep family ties with communities in Mexico that go back generations. We depend on trade with Mexico to sustain our economies. Thousands of people cross the border every day to visit family, commute to work, or simply shop at the malls. I'm increasingly concerned by the rhetoric from many parts of this Congress and from leading public figures and presidential candidates who want to, quote, shut down the border and to stop those seeking refuge in the United States from attempting to. Between 2017 and 2021, I spent four years fighting an ever-increasing barrage of the most ill-conceived and malicious policies to harm migrants in border communities, and I'm increasingly concerned that we will relive those experiences again. I fear that codifying this provision, especially without meaningful safeguards, would give those who capitalize on fear and xenophobia an important tool to pursue their agenda. I do not believe that this is the intention of the authors of the bill, but we cannot trust that those who will wield these powers that we present to them 
in the future will not abuse those powers. Protecting the civil liberties of Americans against surveillance is a personal issue for me. My mother, a civil rights activist in the 1960s and 70s and even now, was surveilled by the FBI back then, as were many of her colleagues in the Mexican-American civil rights movement and those who were in the African-American civil rights movement and other political movements. So my family knows what it means for the government to turn these powerful tools against it. It's clear that serious reform of the FISA 702 authorities are needed, and there are important proposals on reforming the authority being debated in the Senate and, of course, in other committees in the House of Representatives. Regardless of what happens to this bill in committee today, I will remain engaged with my colleagues in this committee, the Judiciary Committee, and the Senate to come up with a way to reauthorize FISA 702 in a manner that appropriately protects civil liberties and minimizes its potential for abuse, regardless of who sits in the Oval Office. With that, I yield back. Thank you. I, represent, uh, I recognize Representative Crenshaw. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you for holding this markup. I, I think it's important to make a statement about FISA reauthorization, what it means, and, and the current debate that, that's happening regarding FISA reauthorization. This committee, and I can't take a lot of credit for this, but members of this committee have worked months and months and months to come up with reforms that I think are absolutely needed. And for the public listening, to put it simply, those reforms would have prevented uh, the abuses of crossfire hurricane that occurred against President Trump. If this is passed, those abuses could not have happened, and, and many other abuses as well. A lot of thought has been put into how to reform FISA 702, and uh, I'll tell you what, I don't think the FBI likes a lot of these reforms. And yet, there is disagreement here on whether or not we should, we should pass it. People, there are members of, of, of both parties that want additional reforms. And I, I can't tell you how concerned I am about those proposals. Usually when we disagree up here, and there's a lot of disagreements, and uh, the outcomes of those disagreements are not always that consequential. The, the world keeps turning. America is really hard to screw up. That's what I love about America. This one really concerns me. I come from a national security background. I have actively tracked bad guys. I've actively tracked terrorists. I know what it takes to investigate. And all of the different threads that you have to pull to conduct that investigation and, and eventually find the guy who wants to harm or kill or spy on Americans. It takes a lot of work and it takes some flexibility. Now, that flexibility can't be endless, which is why we're doing additional reforms to, to an already very strict process. But the reforms coming out of the Judiciary Committee are downright terrifying. It, it, it effectively would dismantle FISA 702 as we know it. Um, they'll, they'll market it as simply saying, well, look, we're just protecting people's Fourth Amendment rights. We're just saying that you have to have a warrant before search and seizure. That's how it will be represented to you. That is not true. That is not exactly what their reforms do. What their reforms do, the proper analogy would be saying that you need a warrant every time a cop wants to run a license plate. So every time a police officer sees a car go by that's speeding or driving erratically, and he wants to run that license plate, you would need a warrant. That's, of course, not how we do things. We're able to access databases with information that we already have, lawfully have. I don't know if the people proposing these reforms understand that. I, I, I do know that they've never done my job 
to try and find uh, terrorists and pull on those threads of information in order to find those terrorists. I do know that they've never done that and know how difficult it actually is. I do know that they don't see what we see on the Intelligence Committee of the massive number of threats that our country is facing. They have seen the FBI director recently say that we have never seen more red alarms going off around the world when it comes to threats against the homeland. And I absolutely believe him because, of course, we see it from our own position here, but also it's intuitive. It's obvious. You have an open border where anyone can get in. You have China on the march. You have Venezuela considering an invasion. You have Iran creating chaos in the Middle East. You have Hamas uh, creating, <laughs> committing atrocities against Israel. You have Russia invading Ukraine. Of course, there are red alarms going off everywhere. And for us to say that we should dismantle one of our primary intelligence collection tools in the midst of all this is so completely insane that I, I, I wish it were funnier, but it's not. This is the one thing, this is the one big disagreement in Congress that actually should frighten the hell out of us. And with that, I yield back. watching a House Intelligence Committee hearing about the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, specifically the reauthorization of Section 702 of FISA. Section 702 allows the Fed to surveil foreigners outside the U.S. for terror threats. It's come under scrutiny for being used to surveil Americans. Let's tune in. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, thank you for the opportunity to speak, and I want to thank you and the ranking member for all of the work that you've done on addressing the important matter of reauthorizing the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Program. I'm gonna support the committee in its approval of this bill, which is a bipartisan effort that represents an unprecedented overhaul of FISA while preserving its vital role in safeguarding our national security. As we continue negotiations in earnest with the Committee on Judiciary, it's imperative that we need, that we recognize the need for reforms within the program the proposed bill reflects this acknowledgement, incorporating measures to strengthen the supervision of queries of U.S. persons by the FBI and eliminating the authority to conduct queries unrelated to national security. It is paramount to understand that the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, particularly Section 702, is a cornerstone in our intelligence collection efforts. The intelligence community and various stakeholders have consistently deemed it essential to preventing transnational terrorists and criminal activities. Its constitutionality has been affirmed repeatedly in federal courts, and its effectiveness in safeguarding our nation is unassailable. In the current threat environment, highlighted by the increased terrorism concerns amid the Israel-Hamas war, FBI Director Christopher Wray has emphasized the urgency of maintaining this vital tool. And I would have this committee know that I have worked personally with Director Ray in the aftermath of 9-11 when we were both political appointees at the Justice Department, and I know his loyalty to this country and the work that he and men and women of the FBI are doing to keep the homeland safe. We cannot afford to let it lapse especially when our government is tirelessly working to prevent potential attacks. I am pleased to see the bill expand the definition of foreign intelligence to include counter-narcotic efforts. This expansion is particularly relevant to my district, 
the Virgin Islands of the United States, which is situated in the transit zone, including counter-narcotics in the scope of foreign intelligence will undoubtedly enhance our ability to combat transatlantic, transnational drug trafficking, which we know is linked to counterterrorism. Moreover, the bill introduces accountability measures for FISA noncompliance, ensuring executive leaders and employees are held responsible. It establishes criminal and administrative penalties for intentional misconduct related to FISA, strengthening the integrity of the entire process. The reforms also extend to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, introducing amicus curiae in the annual reauthorization process and enhancing the adversarial nature of the proceedings. These changes aim to reinforce fairness, independence, and protect the privacy and civil liberties of America. In conclusion, I support the committee in adopting the FISA Reform Reauthorization Act of 2023. This bill strikes a delicate balance between national security imperatives and safeguarding the rights of American citizens. Let's move forward with the understanding that reauthorizing Section 702 is not just a necessity, but a duty to protect our nation from evolving threats. Thank you, and I yield back. Thank you, Representative Plastic Plaskett. Is there, are there any other members who wish to either offer an amendment or to speak concerning uh, 6611? Seeing none, I move for the adoption of H.R. 6611, the FISA Reform and Reauthorization Act of 2023. The question is on the adoption of 6611. All those in favor say aye. Aye. Those opposed, no. In the opinion of the chair, the ayes have it and the bill is agreed to. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid on the table. The chair now recognizes the gentleman from Connecticut, Mr. Himes, for the purpose of a motion. Mr. Chairman, I move that the committee report favorably to the House, the bill H.R. 6611. The question is on the motion of the gentleman from Connecticut. Mr. Himes, all those in favor say aye. 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 Those opposed, no. Members may request to file supplemental minority, additional, or dissenting views as part of the committee report. Mr. Himes, are you or any member planning to file minority views? Yes, we will. Consistent with House rules, members are granted two additional calendar days to file minority or any other supplemental views to the committee's report to the House on H.R. 6611, pursuant to Clause 2L of House Rule 11. I ask unanimous consent that committee staff be authorized to make necessary conforming technical and clerical changes to the bill adopted by the committee and to remove from the bill provisions that would result in additional direct spending. Without objection, so ordered. I ask unanimous consent that the committee authorize the use of proxy voting in any conference committee with the Senate regarding H.R. 6611 or any similar legislation passed by the Senate. Without objection, so ordered. There being no further legislative business before the committee, this meeting is adjourned. Thanks for staying with us. Now we're switching gears to a House Armed Services Committee hearing on the high demand for U.S. ballistic missiles. The demand is coming from U.S. allies and partner nations amid increased threats to countries like Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. Let's watch. Today, we meet to receive testimony on regional missile defense capabilities. This includes the Patriot System, the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense, or THAAD system, and the Aegis or Aegis Weapons System. Testing before the subcommittee today are Mr. John D. Hill, the Deputy Assistant De Secretary of Defense for Space and Missile Defense Policy, Major General Sean Ganey, the Director of Fires within the headquarters of the Department of the Army, Rear Admiral Doug Williams, who as of yesterday is no longer the Acting Director of the Missile Defense Agency, but is now Director of Test at MDA, 
I guess there have been a lot of promotions here in the last couple days. Yes, sir. And finally, Brigadier General Claire Gill, the Joint Staff's Deputy Director for Regional Operations and Force Management. Thank you all for being here with us. As the conflicts in Ukraine and the Middle East continue to demonstrate, missile defense capabilities are becoming increasingly important on the modern battlefield. However, demand for these systems continues to outpace supply. And re in recent years, the force has experienced significant stress attempting to meet the needs of our combatant commanders. This suggests we are far below what will be needed in a conflict with a near-peer adversary. This issue will only get worse as the need to increase deterrence in the Indo-PACOM theater becomes more urgent. Over the last month, we've seen Iranian proxies attempt to sink U.S. military and civilian vessels transiting the Red Sea. These attacks by the Houthis, which were named a foreign terrorist organization by the Trump administration, has only intensified over the past week. U.S. missile defense assets in the area, particularly those aboard the USS Kearney, were able to intercept some of the incoming missiles and UAVs. This quick action likely saved the lives of U.S. Navy sailors and commercial seamen. We look forward to hearing from our witnesses on how the department manages these scarce assets and whether additional capacity is necessary. While not the subject of today's hearing, I must express my concern about reports that the department is considering early downselects to a single contractor on several key missile defense programs. Maintaining multiple competing industry teams helps limit risk in developmental programs, and this subcommittee will closely scrutinize any decision to eliminate competition so as to ensure that a sufficient rationale exists. I'm similarly concerned that the department may be reconsidering a transfer of the Missile Defense Agency's responsible responsibilities for the THAAD program to the Army. The idea of transitioning mature missile defense programs from MDA to the services is not new. However, the department's longstanding and consistent position in the case of THAAD has been that doing so would be disruptive and unnecessarily would add risk to the program. Based on this argument, last year's defense authorization bill repealed a standing requirement for such a transfer. If the department's view has now changed, I would expect that it would thoroughly consult with this committee. The department must explain why it is reopening this issue and considering changes that per the department would put THAAD at risk. The fiscal year 2024 National Defense Authorization Act has several key provisions on regional missile defense. Among other things, it includes additional THAAD interceptors and an acceleration of the glide phase interceptor program for hypersonic missile defense. I cannot emphasize enough how critical it is that we get the NDAA signed into law at the soonest possible time. With that, I recognize Ranking Member Seth Moulton for any opening comments he may have. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I'd also like to welcome our panel of distinguished witnesses here on December 7th, the 82nd anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. In Ukraine, Israel, and around the world, our adversaries are using missiles to attack not just military targets, but diplomatic facilities, energy infrastructure, commercial shipping vessels, and civilian populations. Fortunately, their success has been limited in part due to deployed missile defenses, many of which are developed and produced by the United States. 
During one of this subcommittee's previous hearings, I laid out the four levels at which missile defenses might be used. Level one, strategic defense against pure adversaries. Level two, addresses a capability to address rogue nation threats. Level three, while somewhat of a nuance, is the ability to defeat an accidental launch of a near-peer adversary. Level four is regional tactical level missile defense. And level five is a foundational level of being able to detect and track threats from the moment they are launched throughout their flight and up until they reach their impact point. Today we are focused on that fourth level, regional or tactical missile defense. In the last two years especially, we have seen how important this is. Ukraine has received incredible support from allies and partners on air and missile defense, which has enabled them to fight back against near nonstop Russian missile attacks. It's safe to say that not only have these systems saved countless civilian lives, but they are a key reason Ukraine has been able to maintain its sovereignty almost two years after war criminal Vladimir Putin's criminal invasion. In Israel, we continue to witness the critical daily role that tactical missile defenses play in defending Israeli citizens from rocket, artillery, mortar, attack drone, and ballistic, ballistic missile threats being launched into the country. For years, these defensive systems, like the famed Iron Dome, have also saved Palestinian lives because previously, the only protection Israel found against these attacks was hitting back offensively. <coughs> Imagine if the bombing like we've seen over the past two months happened every time rockets were fired at Israel over the past two decades. The administration has also shifted U.S. force structure in the region, deploying the Terminal High Altitude Area Defense, or THAAD, battery to Saudi Arabia, adding Patriot battalions, and increasing Aegis BMD at sea presence. These systems have not only defended against attacks on U.S. deployed forces, but also against attacks aimed at commercial shipping vessels in one of the most congested and vital thoroughfares of global trade. While these systems are performing well operationally, this confluence of global aggression has spotlighted our limited capacity to address the growing requirements from each of the combatant commanders, primarily in Indo-PACOM, CENTCOM, and UCOM. With a finite number of Aegis BMD-capable ships, THAAD batteries, and Patriot battalions, at some point, a point we may have already reached, any changes in our regional missile defense posture will almost certainly induce risk somewhere else in the world. The limited capacity of regional missile defense capabilities highlights a central issue in the missile defense policy debate. Missile defense to date has been on the wrong side of the cost equation, and at the end of the day, it is a simple numbers game. For example, the USS Kearney has recently shot down several Houthi missiles using standard missile two interceptors. Those interceptors have a per unit cost of $2 million, more than double the cost of the cruise missiles they shot down. This is why we must look at next generation capabilities as well, capabilities that can flip the cost paradigm, such as directed energy, cyber, and other innovative solutions that are not one-for-one -one point defenses. Only then will we have a decent chance of stopping our adversaries from relying so heavily on missile technology. Lastly, while we are here today primarily to talk about systems and capabilities, we would be remiss not to discuss our greatest asset when it comes to missile defense, the soldiers and sailors assigned to the Aegis BMD ships, Patriot battalions, and THAAD batteries around the world. I remember the early days of Iraq and Afghanistan when the missile defense community had little to do. 
But recently, these troops have been overtaxed, experiencing shorter and shorter deployment dwell times, and GAO has repeatedly reported on the negative impact on readiness and training for the community. The Navy, though less discussed, is not immune to these issues either. The independent review conducted after the collisions of the USS McCain and Fitzgerald, both Aegis BMD-capable ships, highlighted the increased op tempo on the crews due to long at-sea deployments and increasing mission requirements, and how those contributed to basic training often being skipped. While this subcommittee tends to focus on the high demand of the weapon systems, we cannot forget about the impact of this intense global demand for missile defense that it places on the men and women who are at the core of our capability. Missiles are an integral part of the modern way of war, and thus so too is missile defense. I look forward to discussing with the witnesses where we can improve these systems and innovate towards the future capabilities we need to meet the increasingly complex missile threats proliferating around the world. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. Okay, we hear that votes are projected to be at 10.30, so we'll go ahead and start in with our testimony, and then we'll move to members' questions. You'll each have five minutes. Your full statements will be part of the record. Mr. Hill, you're recognized first. Chairman Lamborn and Ranking Member Moulton, distinguished members of the committee, of the subcommittee. Uh, on behalf of the Office of the Secretary of Defense, thank you for the opportunity to testify today alongside my distinguished colleagues. Uh, the ongoing conflicts in Europe and the Middle East underscore the centrality of missiles in modern warfare and global strategy. Likewise, for U.S. forces and U.S. allies and partners around the world in this era of missile-centric warfare, active missile defenses have become an essential element of a credible military force posture. In the most basic sense, Integrated Air and Missile Defense, or IAMD, encompasses diverse sensors and shooters with the command and control systems that network them together to give battlefield commanders the optimal selection of interceptors to defend against a given threat. Space-based sensors and networks are an increasingly important component of IAMD systems for homeland and regional defenses. But in a broader sense, IAMD must also be integrated with other elements of military posture, including strike systems that can hold an adversary's critical military capabilities at risk. Moreover, IAMD must also incorporate passive defenses, including resilient critical infrastructure and broader missile defeat options, such as electronic warfare and supply chain interdictions that disrupt proliferation channels. The IAMD efforts of the United States, our allies and partners, are sound in the face of evolving and expanding threats. These efforts are advancing shared national security interests in the defense of freedom and common values. However, protecting national security is a process of continual investment and funding. And as Secretary Austin has emphasized, although the passage of another continuing resolution has put off the threat of a lapse of funding, Operating under continuing resolutions hamstrings the department's people and programs and undermines both our national security and competitiveness. Further, passing supplemental funding can ultimately strengthen our national security, deter our adversaries, meet our commitments to allies and partners, and ensure Israel and Ukraine have the military capabilities they need to succeed. 
I thank you again for this opportunity to testify. You have my full written testimony for the record, uh, and I thank you for the role this subcommittee plays in supporting our homeland and regional integrated air and missile defense interests around the globe. I look forward to our discussion and your questions. Thank you. Thank you. Major General Ganey. Chairman Lamborn, Ranking Member Moulton, and distinguished members of the subcommittee, on behalf of the Secretary of the Army and the Chief of Staff of the Army, thank you for the opportunity to highlight the importance of regional missile defense. As you know, air and missile-related threats have rapidly expanded in recent years in quantity, variety, and sophistication. Current events around the world highlight the criticality of missile defense as a force for deterrence and as an essential element of our national defense. These challenging and important times for the Joint and Integrated Air Missile Defense Force, and while specific details of current and planned deployments are more appropriate for a closed session, I can say that the Army Air and Missile Defense remains the Army's most heavily deployed force with the highest demand signal among the combatant commands every year. In that context, the importance of the work that our air and missile defense soldiers do each and every day in support of the Army and the nation cannot be overstated, and I want to thank you for your continued support to them and their families. Our Army's contribution to defeating the wide range of evolving threats in advancing and continues to improve in both capability and capacity as we build towards the future Army. This additive capability and its associated force structure is designed not only to defeat the threat, but to minimize the impact on soldiers and their families. With capability, does not consist only of material solutions. The amazing soldiers that operate and sustain these systems remain our true center of gravity. Recruiting and retaining the nation's top talent for our Army and Air and Missile Defense Forces is the linchpin of our success. Caring for our soldiers and their family is paramount to win in any environment around the globe. A critical point to emphasize is that integrated air and missile defense is a shared responsibility across the service. No one service by itself will have enough capability and capacity to protect every critical asset across the globe. Therefore, to reduce the burden, the Army continues to work with our joint service partners to include the U.S. Navy AGES Ballistic Missile Defense and the U.S. Air Force Offensive Counter-Air Operations. Integration with allies and partners on missile defense is also an important priority to strengthen international cooperation and defeat our shared threats. Integrated deterrence with our allies and partners provides commanders layered and tiered options to degrade, disrupt, and defeat adversary air and missile defense threats. Our ability to protect the homeland and our collective interests abroad is dependent on burden sharing between our air and missile defenses and that of our partners. Let me conclude by saying that I take great pride in the efforts and sacrifices made by all soldiers and their family on behalf of the nation. The Army recognizes the demand placed on the force and has taken significant and aggressive steps to enhance regional air and missile defense capabilities and capacity, as well as implementing important quality of life improvements. The Army will continue to work with joint service partners and allies to better integrate their defenses into the overall missile defense architecture. The Army appreciates the continued support and significant investments for Congress. Thank you for shedding light on this important issue today, and I look forward to your questions. And this concludes our coverage of the House Armed Services Committee hearing on the high demand for U.S. ballistic missiles. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com.
News. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Former President Trump back in New York for the civil fraud trial. What does he have to say about the case? Did any GOP candidates turn the tide at the final primary debate? We'll hear from analysts as Trump is polling higher than ever. Does this spell the end of primary debates? Israel says it encircled the house of Hamas's leader in Gaza. Does that mean they'll catch him soon? We bring you what Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says. Medical records on 500,000 patients and former patients were stolen from a U.S. data warehouse. What's the impact? Russia says Ukraine will be America's second Vietnam. It claims America's financial aid is being sucked into a black hole. We bring you what's behind the statements. And today is the 82nd anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Hear what one of the few remaining survivors has to say. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Former President Trump back in court today for the New York civil fraud trial. He again criticized New York Attorney General Letitia James before going in to watch a witness testify for him. This violent crime and this Attorney General who's crazy, she's a lunatic. The Attorney General sits here because she knows that she has a judge and no matter all the evidence, that, ju that judge is going to rule in her favor. He ruled against me before the case even started. The case hadn't started. He knew nothing and he ruled against me. Eli Bartov, an accounting professor at New York University, is the Trump team's second to last witness. He's testifying to try to boost Trump's argument that his family's business didn't manipulate the values of its holdings. Before going into the courtroom, Trump again called this trial a witch hunt and said there was no victims in the case. Trump has appeared as a witness once already. He's expected to testify as the final witness on Monday. Republican presidential candidates hoping to take on former President Trump battled it out in the fourth primary debate last night. News Nation hosted the event at Tuscaloosa's University of Alabama. The four GOP hopefuls told voters why they should be considered a viable alternative to the dominant frontrunner. Former President Trump skipped the event and used his own means to reach voters. He attended a fundraiser in Florida for his super PAC instead. One main theme contested was policy. The narrowing field gave those left on stage more room to speak and scrutinize each other. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has takeaways from the GOP debate. GOP candidates vying for second place in the polls tried to chip away at the no-show frontrunner's lead in their appeals to voters Wednesday night. The fact of the matter is, he is unfit to be president. Rivals weren't taking any chances with former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley on a recent hot streak. Candidates up here like Nikki Haley, she caves 
anytime the left comes after. Nikki Haley, who thinks the government should identify every one of those individuals with an ID. That is not freedom. That is fascism. And she should come nowhere near the levers of power, let alone the White House. And I love all the attention, fellas. Thank you for that. DeSantis dug in on Chinese regime connections, accusing Haley of being the top ranked among governors when it came to bringing the Chinese Communist Party into a state. Her donors, these Wall Street liberal donors, they make money in China. They are not going to let her be tough on China, and she will cave to the donors. She will not stand up for you. First of all, he's mad because those Wall Street donors used to support him, and now they support me. Issues ranging from border security, immigration, foreign affairs, COVID vaccines, and election integrity were also hit on throughout the night, not shy of personal attacks. Nikki, I don't have a woman problem. You have a corruption problem. And I think that that's what people need to know. Haley said as UN ambassador, she was hands-on when it comes to China and Taiwan. She said the way to keep the Chinese regime away from them is to let them know there'll be hell to pay by winning the war in Ukraine. Chris, your version of foreign policy experience was closing a bridge from New Jersey to New York. So do everybody a favor, just walk yourself off that stage, enjoy a nice meal, and get the hell out of this race. Vivek Ramaswamy led speaking time once again in the News Nation hosted debate, defending former President Trump in his absence. All three of them have been licking Donald Trump's boots for years for money and endorsements. Contender Chris Christie claiming to be the only one brave enough to chastise Trump. This is an angry, bitter man who now wants to be back as president because he wants to exact retribution. The fifth guy who doesn't have the guts to show up and stand here The battle over electability will continue, with Trump currently leading most opinion polls by more than 40 percentage points. Ramaswamy is calling for the fifth debate to be held on X. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Last night's debate wraps up the GOP pre-primary debate season as a whole. Did anything stand out? Here's Jeff Cruer, political analyst and host of Ringside Politics. Jeff Cuer, thank you for joining us. No future GOP debates have been scheduled as of yet, and the GOP primaries are set to begin in Iowa on January 15th. What's your overall synopsis of the four GOP debates we've seen? Uh, well, the, the the leader has not been in any of them. <laughs> so uh, the one who's 40, 50, 60 points ahead uh, has not been on uh, any of the four stages. and. Uh, he has been the elephant in the room, though, because they've all talked about him. Uh, they've all been uh, wondering, you know, how can we uh, get uh, ahead of these others to take him on one-on-one? So uh, it, it has been interesting. Uh, I think he likes to debate, but I think he realized it would hurt him more to be on that stage, elevating some of these folks that are way back. So he made the decision not to participate. And I think as a front runner, I think that was a, the smart decision. Do you think any of these debates stood out for you for any of these candidates that we've seen? Well, it really, to me, showed the division in the party between sort of the neocon, uh, traditional Bush establishment wing, McCain, Romney, uh, and those are represented by Chris Christie and uh, Nikki Haley. And then your more MAGA uh, wing, uh, Trump uh, wing, I think that was represented by DeSantis and uh, Vivek. And there's really a division between those two groups within the, you know, within the Republican Party and on the dates, uh, on the debate stage. And it's interesting that the big donors now are getting behind Haley because many of them come from that wing of the Republican Party. 
And what impact do you think these debates will have on the GOP primaries once they kick off, if any? Not much. Uh, I think uh, last night might have marginally helped uh, Vivek, uh, maybe marginally helped uh, Ron DeSantis. I, I think uh, Nikki Haley was taking a lot of his um, criticisms. Uh, Chris Christie, of course, uh, MSNBC loved. I don't know how much the Republican electorate's going to love. So I don't think that they're really having much impact because Trump was a big leader when it started. Trump's the big leader now. So I don't think they've been able to really put a dent into his lead, which I think is what they're trying to figure out how to do. Now, maybe when they consolidate and you get down to a one-on-one -on -one match, it'll be a little bit different. But, you know, he's still the overwhelming frontrunner. Yeah, so you're saying there's not too much of a chance for these other candidates. But based on their performance in the debates, do any of them, um, you know, have a shot at the presidency in the future? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think you could be looking at a 2028 candidate uh, in Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, or Vivek Ramaswamy. I think they all could be potential candidates. And I, I don't think uh, any of them will be picked by Donald Trump as a running mate. Uh, so I think they'll have to sort of come at it from their own um, position. But I, I do think you're looking at potential future presidential candidates there, yes. Uh, and that's what the argument was about DeSantis. And you got a bright future. You just got elected for a second term. Why didn't you wait to run in, in 2028? And um, that's a question that he's been facing. In fact, Megyn Kelly asked him last night, I mean, is it time for you to drop out? Because uh, he, he had all the money, all the support from that wing of the party, and it didn't translate into, into good poll numbers. All right, Jeff Cruer, host of Ringside Politics. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And next to offer his analysis of last night's debate is Roger Simon, director of the presidential roller coaster on Epic TV. And he also has a new book coming out in January. Let's hear from him now. Roger Simon, former President Trump was not on the debate stage last night, but he is far ahead in the polls, of course. So of the candidates who were there, who do you think came out the strongest? Uh, no one. <laughs> I, I really think, you know, it, it's all so marginal at this point. You know, it, it depends on your psychology and who you like. It's, I, I think that uh, a lot of these people are passing their sell-by late. <laughs> and I think that the audience, I, I found myself not wanting to watch. Uh, so what? And I'm a political junkie, and I'm a pundit, and I do all this thing for a living. And I went, oh my God, the same stuff, and I have to hear it again and again. And I can't imagine the audience feels that differently. So would you uh, say that they didn't they didn't differentiate themselves in any way in any new way from previous debates? Not much. And you know, there's a famous expression from Freud. I'm not a Freudian, but I read my Freud, and one of the great things he talks about is the narcissism of small differences. That's what, that's what we have here. I mean, if you come down to it, if these people actually were president, how different would they be in their policies? Not radically. And so that's one of the reasons what you get in a, in a debate like this is a lot of hostility uh, and name calling that went on and on and on. And, and, you know, I don't think it helped the Republican Party. 
and uh, I don't think it helps the voter. But you know, what, maybe I'm wrong. What, what do you think? Uh, you know, there is the idea of the voters needing to be informed as they head to the polls, and of course, many people are loyal to President Trump. But there is that process in place to allow people to discover you know, where everybody stands. And as the world issues keep developing, there's a need to hear people. What is there a value to debates like this at this time? It's not, well, frankly, in my opinion, since I'm here as an opinionator, I'll tell you, not great. I mean, I don't think there's a tremendous delineation of, uh, of policy going on. I think you, if you're really interested in their policy, go to their website. <laughs> uh, uh, I, you know, to some extent, I think they try to do it, but I think they're looking very hard for differentiations between themselves in order to win, rather than. And here's another interesting question that I was thinking about last night watching this debate: What does debating have to do with actually being president? It's an interesting question. That nobody, it, it, you know, the best debater may not be the, it may not be a good president. The other, the other question is this: I, I missed Douglas Burgum, who is the star of my recent uh, roller coaster episode, because he seemed more reasonable and thoughtful than, than any of them up there. I guess I just wanted to check in with you about President Trump. You mentioned yeah. obviously it wasn't there, uh, yeah. but what do you think about his strategy in in terms of content and and being absent and posting his own debate? Well, you know, I think in in in, in one area he's being very savvy, and that is I think for a uh, Republican to win in this election, they have to soft pedal the abortion issue and make that something that. Uh, doesn't seem like it's going to be by fiat to all American women. And I think Trump gets that, and some of the people on that stage don't get it. And I think that's a, a that's going to be a huge difference maker going on. I, I, frankly, that's one of the reasons I think it's... I think that Trump is, is savvier about the electorate than people give him credit for. I mean, yeah. I think he pays attention to things like that, and I think that's a very big one. That is an interesting point. Thank you so much, Roger Simon. Great to speak with you as always. Up next, who will replace ousted Congressman George Santos? The former representative speaks on some of the options, suggesting it's not looking good for Republicans. This comes as one candidate was found guilty on charges related to the January 6th Capitol breach. And a new AI breakthrough, Google parent company Alphabet says the latest development has more nuance. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. An update on the Israel-Hamas war. Israel says it has surrounded the house of the terrorist organization's leader in Gaza. This as the Biden administration says it keeps working to free American hostages. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Wednesday night said Israeli forces encircled the house of Hamas's leader. Netanyahu says his house may not be where the leader actually hides, adding that he could also escape, but that it's only a matter of time before Israel gets him. Meanwhile, the Wall Street Journal reports that Israel might flood Hamas's tunnels with seawater. Israel reportedly assembled a system of large pumps. The system could flood the vast tunnel network within weeks. This would drive Hamas fighters out of their underground bases. 
Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu today issued a warning to Hezbollah. He said if they start an all-out war, the action will single-handedly turn South Lebanon into Gaza. Attorney General Merrick Garland said Wednesday that Hamas has killed more than 30 Americans and kidnapped more. He added that the Justice Department is investigating these cases. It's believed that over 130 hostages are still being held captive in Gaza. The White House said eight U.S. citizens are among them. And just in, a Texas woman is allowed to get an abortion. Her pregnancy is probably non-viable. This case is believed to be the first of its kind since the U.S. Supreme Court allowed states to determine their abortion laws. Texas law bans abortions except to save the mother's life or prevent substantial impairment of a major bodily function. The ruling is a temporary order, allowing the, the abortion before the case can be fully considered. The woman, Kate Cox, said that her fetus was diagnosed with a genetic abnormality that usually results in miscarriage or death soon after birth. She filed the lawsuit on Tuesday. Cox said because she had two previous cesarean sections, she would need to have a third one if she continues with the pregnancy, which could jeopardize her ability to have more children. She said that she and her husband wanted to have more children in the future. The idea that Ms. Cox wants desperately to be a parent and this law might actually cause her to lose that ability is uh, shocking and um, <laughs> would be a, a genuine miscarriage of justice. So. I will be signing the order and it will be processed and sent out today. The House has voted to censure Democratic Representative Jamal Bowman for pulling a false fire alarm in a Capitol Hill office building. The vote was mostly along party lines with three Democrats voting with Republicans, while four Democrats and one Republican voted present. Bowman pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor charge and received a fine and probation. Republicans argue that the censure holds him accountable for breaking the law, while Democrats said the legal process has already served its purpose. Bowman was caught on tape pulling a fire alarm in September at the Cannon House office building. He did it as the House was scheduled to vote on a government funding bill. He said it was an accident. A censure is an official public reprimand carrying no further consequences. And we have the latest updates on the shooting at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. Police say three people were killed and a fourth person is in critical condition. And we know more about the suspected shooter. A law enforcement official told the Associated Press that he was a professor who was rejected at a job at the school. The source said he previously worked at East Carolina University in North Carolina. Another law enforcement official said the suspect is 67-year-old Anthony Polito. Officials spoke on the condition of anonymity because they weren't authorized to release the information publicly. Police didn't immediately identify the victims or the motive behind the attack. Investigators searched an apartment in Henderson, Nevada last night as part of the investigation. They retrieved several electronic devices. New York City Mayor Eric Adams is visiting Washington, D.C. today to meet with congressional leaders and FEMA's administrator. It's his latest effort to secure more federal assistance to address New York's growing illegal immigrant population. 
Adams argued that the federal government should cover the estimated $12 billion cost facing his city over the next three years, rather than burdening local taxpayers. He also criticized FEMA for insufficient funding and using resources to bus illegal immigrants to the Big Apple. Negotiations on Capitol Hill over the border hit a deadlock yesterday after Republican senators blocked a Ukraine-Israel aid bill over border security funding. The U.S. is taking another step to stop the flow of fentanyl into the country. The Treasury Department sanctioned 15 people and two companies linked to the Beltran-Levia drug cartel. These sanctions, alongside other recent designations, will help disrupt this behavior and undermine the broader dangerous network involved in the illicit supply and transfer of fentanyl. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen unveiled the sanctions on her first trip to Mexico since taking office in 2021. They're aimed at disrupting the cartel's operations. The U.S. describes Beltran Leva as one of the most powerful drug trafficking organizations in the world. The cartel is a major supplier of cocaine and fentanyl in the U.S. Yellen toured a government crime lab, which is training dogs to detect fentanyl ingredients. She now plans to meet with Mexico's finance minister and central bank chief. Two Democratic lawmakers have unveiled the bill to give prisoners and the formerly incarcerated the right to vote. Representative Ayanna Presley and Senator Peter Welch are sponsoring the legislation. Some states bar voting for people who are currently in prison. Certain states prohibit convicted felons from voting. Other states allow former prisoners to vote after a certain period following their release. Presley says nearly 5 million people in the U.S. are directly affected by these policies. However, the bill is unlikely to advance in the divided Congress, and the lawmakers have acknowledged the headwinds to their legislation. Replacing ousted Republican Congressman George Santos. Will the seat go to a Democratic candidate now? That's the angle Santos himself is calling attention to. The former New York congressman took two acts to talk about two of his potential successors. The first one is Mike Sapriconi, a Republican who, according to Santos, donated $40,000 to a Democratic gubernatorial campaign last year. The other one is Mazi Palip. She's a Republican county legislator, but Santos says Palip has been registered as a Democrat since 2012. Santos concludes that the Nassau GOP is going to nominate either a Democrat or a Democrat donor to replace him. Meanwhile, another